Right, hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, hosting as always, my name's Dan, and I'm joined this evening by Paul. Good evening. And Calm. Evening. Are you both good, gents? Excellent, Dan. Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, very well, thanks. Just, just before we, we get started, I'd just like to remind um, our listeners that you can listen to the Big Football Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Amazon Music. If we get into the, the week's football, gents, we were, uh, we were a day later this week for logistical reasons. Um, the, the big news of the week so far uh, is, is comfortably Frank Lampard meeting his maker at Chelsea. Um, he's been at the club a long time. Obviously, he had that little spell away when he's, he reached the end of his career. He knows how Chelsea work. Uh, he knows that he was he had a decent season last season. And it's really coming apart at the seams. I'm not so sure that he deserved to be sat back based on the back of a pretty unconvincing um, win over Luton. But in reality, I, I thought since the, the Manchester City game, when um, they were really swatted aside effortlessly by, by City, I thought I, I think the writing's been on the wall since then. And I'm not really surprised that he's been sacked. Yeah, I thought you know we talked about this um, a few weeks ago, didn't we? Um, around who the you know were, there were obviously rumours for a while now um, that, that they were looking around. Um, we, we you know we joked about that uh, that that article that got released the second after was it, it was after that game, wasn't it? I think the, the I think it was. Game, yeah, it was. Uh, it, it, yeah, we were sort of joking about <laughs> it, but, but clearly there was some truth to it because you know what? Three weeks later, um, he's got the boots. Um, and you know we know that that Chelsea and you know particularly Abramovich are, are quite ruthless, um, and I, I guess you don't become the kind of businessman Abramovich is by um, having sympathy for people just because you like them or because he was a good player for your club. So it, as you say, it's not surprising really. This is a, a hallmark of Abramovich's sort of uh, you know ownership of the club. Um, that's the model that he has, um, and you, you know whilst it's. Still, you know, you know, there are lots of reasons why, you know, maybe perhaps should have been given a bit more time and it perhaps is unfortunate and so on. That's that's just the way that they operate. So, you know, equally whilst I'm sure, you know, Frank Lampard's probably upset and angry, hasn't had a bit more time. I, I don't think equally um that he can be that shocked either by it in all honesty. Um, because I'm sure, you know, he's known since the particularly after the outlay in the summer, that that just by default, you know, increases the focus and, and uh and the expectation on you to perform. And you know, ultimately, they've had they have had a bad run. Um, and you know, we 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 talked a few weeks back, and I'm sure Paul will jump in. You know, about some of the candidates, um, and that if they were going to get someone, you know, proper top class like Allegri, then maybe it makes sense. But if not, give him, you know, give him, give him to give it, give it Lampard to the end of the season. Um, uh, but obviously, they, it doesn't look like they are doing that, and that they are going to go for you know the, you know, I think it's Tuchel, isn't it? Who if he, I don't know if he's got the job yet but he, he seemed to be the front runner um when I last looked and that almost sounds like it's it's done that he's going to come in um which you know it, again it's a very Chelsea thing you know it's sort of a who's a who's an available fashionable-ish manager who's had some success at another club you know we'll give him a go for a year or two and that's kind of what they did with sort of Sari and Conte and again that's that's just the way that they operate um, so whether he'll be any more successful, we'll have to wait and see. I think the logic behind it seems to be that you know they've recruited players from the German leagues, and he, you know, he knows some of those those players um, from his time there, and that he can maybe get the best out of them. You know, we speculated whether they were really Lampard signings. You know, maybe the fact that they've parted with him, 
you know, halfway through the season suggests actually maybe he wasn't invest as invested in that recruitment strategy. Um, so therefore making him more dispensable. Again, that's complete rampant speculation, but it perhaps does make a bit of sense. Um, so yeah, bit of a bit of a shame for him. Um, whether we'll see a you know revitalised Chelsea. I mean, the things I think they're only a few points because we've talked about how close it is in that top half. You know, it, it really only takes a bit of a run to all of a sudden put yourself back up there, which I'm sure is why Lampard will feel a bit angry, probably because I'm sure he'll feel that you know we probably could have could have turned it around and got them back into contention at least for a top four place. Um, but equally, it does now leave it. There is an opportunity there for Tuchel or whoever comes in to sort of seize that a bit and get that momentum because, um, you know, from a sort of narrative perspective now, it's quite well poised. You know, you're exactly halfway through the season. Um, and ultimately, yes, whilst their league position isn't great, the, the, the points gap is still very tight. And, you know, it only takes a bit of galvanising and a few results and all of a sudden you're back amongst it again. So, you know, we've talked about how interesting the title race is this season. This this just adds another, a bit of a, you know, from a completely neutral perspective, a bit of a layer of excitement to that of always this, you know, are we going to see a potential resurgence? Because um, if they can organise themselves, you know, they do have talented players there. It's not, you know, I'm not saying they'll win the league, but, you know, it wouldn't be outrageous to think that they could launch themselves back up you know, at least into a good battle for a, for a top four place you know, if whoever comes in can can get it right um, and have a bit of a standing start. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a there's a lot there, isn't there? To, to a lot of ways you can look at this. I, I certainly think the the rationale that oh well we've got we bought a few German players in the summer and they've not really worked out, so let's get a German manager. I, <laughs> I, I do struggle a little bit with that to be honest. It feels a rather simplistic way of looking at football. Well, I'm sure um, Jurgen Klinsmann but will I, be I, cheaper. Well, exactly. I, I mean, I don't know what the uh, I don't know what the language issue is there. Maybe maybe there's a concern that Havertz and and Werner aren't aren't particularly fluent. I don't know. Um, but beyond that, really, what why is a German coach going to be better at getting the performance out of Kai Havertz and a, a British coach? I don't I don't really buy that. It's not like, as far as I know, Tuchel hasn't coached Havertz the player before. Um, I. I just find that slightly strange rationale, if I'm being honest. I also, you know, I did say a couple of weeks ago, if you can get Allegri, fair, you know, fair enough, get rid of Lampard and get Allegri. I think he's a, a top coach. There the will be people who, who put Tuchel in that same class. Um, I have to say I'm not one of them. Uh, I think he's a good manager. He's a capable manager. Yes, he got PSG to the Champions League final last year. I mean, when I look at their squad, I... I think you should be getting to Champions League finals. Um, and you'd only have to go back one year before that to remember him getting knocked out of the Champions League by a Manchester United team with a caretaker manager who were in complete disarray, uh, having got what looked like a really good result in the away leg and then fell apart at home. So, like, is Thomas Tuchel a top coach? I don't know. I think he's a good coach. Um, I'm not sure he's in that very, very top class. I'd have liked to see them stick with Frank till the end of the season, um, at least till the end of the season, and then have a think about it. They they do feel like they've panicked. Apparently, the, the Leicester game was the point that really made the decision. Everything that's happened since then has been irrelevant in terms of Frank's chances of keeping his job. Um, and, and that's... As as Khan's already said, that is the way Chelsea operate, and it's the way they've operated in the Abramovich era, and they've they've been relatively successful with it. I mean, it's bonkers to most football fans, but Chelsea's been relatively successful with it, um, with the hire and fire approach, and and you know 
using the players as the kind of consistency and making the manager an interchangeable piece. They've they've had success with that model. The question is this this team they've built now, this younger team that they spent money on in the summer, is that of the same sort of quality as the, the previous teams that they've had in the in the Abramovich era, where they could leave a group of players in place five, six, seven years and just swap the manager around. That I think that's to be to be determined. It's not clear to me yet one way or the other um so i i i'm frustrated because i feel like it's an opportunity for a young british coach that's maybe been taken away a little bit soon in one of those top jobs and we've talked about how infrequently british coaches tend to get those top jobs so i i I do have some sympathy for frank but he knows he knows the way chelsea operate he knows the way the football club has has run its business It, it feels as though there's a lot of politics going on in the background the the Russian lady whose name I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. Apparently, the relationship between her and Frank had broken down. He still allegedly has a decent relationship with the owner, although, you know, the owner has just sacked him. Um, but but it feels like there's the, the Russian lady, there's Petacek, there's a lot of people with, with their hand in the pie here. Um, and maybe a lot of people who... If we accept the premise that not all the signings in the summer were Lampard signings, there are people over Lampard's head at the football club who, in order to protect their own position, need those signings to work out. So if I'm Petacek and the the Russian and I think, you know, these signings aren't as good as I thought they'd be when we decided to buy them, is it maybe convenient for those people that Frank carries a can? That that's that's my way of looking at it, and maybe that's the wrong way. But but you often see again, we've talked before about the fact that I'm an NFL fan. You often see in the NFL if there's a general manager out there who has drafted a player, particularly a quarterback, and then they can't get that quarterback to work, his his invariable response is to sack the head coach and hope that the next coach makes the quarterback look a lot better because it's about protecting your own position. And I, I feel like there's a bit of that going on at Chelsea. Um, and just before I conclude, Dan, that the sort of the, the other way of approaching this is um, where does Frank Lampard go next? Because he's still a reasonably young guy. Is he 42, 43, something like that? He obviously has been somebody who I think has been preparing to go into coaching for the back end of his of his playing career. He's now three seasons into his managerial career and he's had and lost what most people would presume to be the dream job for Frank Lampard. Um, like, I find it very difficult to believe that the next job Frank gets is going to be a step up from Chelsea. It almost invariably will be a step down. Uh, so where does he go? Does he try and revitalise his career with a mid-level Premier League job? Does he drop back into the Championship to take a job? He obviously had one year at Derby. Does he go abroad to take a job? I suspect Frank Lampard still wants to coach. I'd be surprised if he allows this to be his final experience as a manager and sort of says, OK, well, I'll go and sit in the Sky studio with Gary and Jamie then. Um, that doesn't strike me as the type of person he is. So I will be interested not only to see how does Thomas Tuchel work at Chelsea, but what happens now for Frank Lampard? It's a, a very difficult one for him because uh, Chelsea is kind of his club, if you if you get my meaning. It's obviously you know, he came through the, the system at West Ham, but um, I, I think uh, Frank Lampard will consider Chelsea his club. He's 
he's certainly got a shout of being the best ever player. And just as we're, as we're talking, by the way, Thomas Tuchel has just been confirmed um, as as Chelsea head coach, according to the breaking news on on BT. So yeah, it's it's difficult for for Lampard. I agree with you that he's he's a football person. He'll want to stay in the game. Um, he, he did quite a good job with Derby. Um, so so maybe he will look at um, a, a job like that. I mean, without. Um, Talking ill of a manager, I've got time for like I, I can see someone like maybe Alex Neil running out of time at Preston, and that that's a, a possibly a good job for him. You know, a team that's in, in a good place but wants to go to that next level, and, and maybe Frank Lampard has got the kind of knowledge of of Premier League youth systems to to maybe get some players in and and take Preston, for example, up. Well, I was going to say a couple of weeks ago, Danny could have he could have gone back to Derby, but um, <laughs> but they've had a couple of results, haven't they? Under under Waza, they've had a couple of results are out of the bottom three, so maybe Derby's uh, not an option for Frank. But yeah, I, I think it, it is interesting where his next job is, and does he take a step back to go forward? Does he try and stay as a Premier League coach? I, I'm really interested by the prospect of him going and working abroad, and I know um, I know his his wife is a, a TV presenter in the UK so that might be difficult for him in terms of taking a job outside of of Britain but I think Frank might actually be the kind of guy who could assimilate into a into a foreign um, culture and into a different way of doing things and kind of learn and come back stronger in a way that maybe I never quite felt Gary Neville was a natural fit in Valencia. Um, Valencia certainly didn't think it. No, no, no. I don't think I don't think after three or four games anyone thought it down. To be honest, but uh, it, 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 yeah, it's interesting to see what Frank does next. I think it, it's a little bit like the Stephen Gerrard question, isn't it? If 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 Jurgen does another couple of years at Liverpool and then moves on, and Stephen Gerrard's won two or three titles in in Scotland, there will be a clamour for Stephen Gerrard to get the Liverpool job. If he gets it and he does well. Great. What if he gets it and he doesn't do well? Where does he go then? And and that's the thing when you you know you could have the same question about Arteta at Arsenal, about about Solskjaer at Manchester United. You get the job at a young age, that's kind of the job you're seen to be working towards. If it doesn't work, what do you do then? You know, uh, can you still motivate yourself? I imagine that when Frank started in management getting to the point where he managed Chelsea was one of the things that drove him and that motivated him. Um, and it's kind of now I've well, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, got sacked. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's an interesting perspective. A lot of people are focusing on how did it go wrong at Chelsea, and, and understandably. But I think there is that question about, OK, what next for Frank? Well, I think we spoke a few weeks ago, didn't we, about career trajectories and is there a change going on about how these kind of big jobs are normally what managers would work up to and now it's almost been flipped on its head and recently, recently-ish recently retired players um, are sort of going to their, their, going back home, you know, as the manager. Um, and, we, you know, we use the examples of some of the players you've mentioned there. Um, it's perhaps not a surprise. And we speculated and said, you know, we'll have to come back in maybe a year and assess if that model's worked and well we've, it's about six weeks I think um, and it's probably not probably not a surprise though that of, of the, I think we're really focusing on you know Man United, Arsenal and Chelsea that it's probably not a shock that Chelsea are the ones that have panicked and, and pulled the trigger first 
um, and decided, oh, that's not working. Let's, let's try something else. Um, obviously also helps that the other two clubs have found a bit of form now and, and have sort of got themselves out of a bit of bit of a mess. Um, but, but, uh, but it but does yeah. make you wonder, doesn't it, Carney? It makes you wonder how, ma- how many results, and we don't know, obviously, we're only speculating as fans watching the TV and reading the, reading the, you know, the news, but how many results was Ole away from, from mm. real trouble in September, yeah. October yeah, 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 yeah. time? How, how many more defeats had he got before Manchester United were going to pull the plug? Similarly with Arteta in that run before Christmas, we talked about it. He needed those results that he got over Christmas. How many games was he away? If he'd lost to Chelsea on Boxing Day and he'd not won the, the couple of games against... Um, Brighton and, and West Brom you know w- was that it was that the plug being pulled and it it's the old Alex Ferguson question isn't it you know was he really defeat against Nottingham Forest away from getting sacked in 1991 um we'll never know in 1990 we'll never know the answer but it, it's still fun to speculate yeah well of course yeah um but I think with um you know with Frank with Frank Lampard I think there is I, I think he'll be viewed quite sort of the sacking will be viewed quite sympathetically I think and by a lot of people and so I do think he'll be given opportunities be- like because it's Chelsea that, oh well of course he got sacked at Chelsea after 18 months everyone gets sacked at Chelsea <laughs> yeah. after 18 months so I don't think that will actually matter too much I think he'll you know he will be able to sort of present a narrative of you know in my fledgling career I've, I've got Derby to a playoff final okay they didn't win but they still did very well um, and then he's had experience at a big club um, and okay, yeah, it didn't work out in the end, but you know it was Chelsea, and you know they don't, they're not, they're not a patient club. So I, I think the opportunities will be there. I think the abroad question is is interesting. I think I certainly think I think there'll be opportunities here domestically because he is you know a, a big name England player and a really prominent player of the last twenty years. Um, so I think there'll be I, I think there'll be opportunities for him here. It'll be interesting to see if opportunities are 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 abroad and if he's interested in them. Because um, as you say, you know, this is like what his third, fourth year in in management, and I'm sure he'll have um, a bit of a point to prove rather than just sort of, you know, re- re- going into the studio with with the other guys. Um, and it feels like there's definitely something there. You know, it doesn't feel like you know he's clearly a youngish coach with still you know a lot to learn. Um, but I think probably seen enough from him that he's clearly capable to a degree. Uh, maybe Chelsea was just you know a bit sort of too too much too soon kind of thing from a sort of profile and expectation perspective and you know maybe another year or two whether it was at Derby or somewhere else with less focus might might have done him a bit of good um but yeah again we'll we'll never know he, he did he did get the you know he did get Chelsea to a cup final last year as well you know we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that they did make the final in the FA Cup um you know won a won a semi-final um got themselves to a final obviously you know the final didn't go the way they'd they'd have wanted to uh i'm interested in the opportunities in the uk because i agree there will be some are they premier league opportunities that's that's the interesting thing for me i'm absolutely convinced that there will be championship clubs who would think yes we'll take frank lampard tomorrow um but will he a want to hold out and see whether there's any interest in the premier league first and B, will there be any? You know, could you see a, let's say in the summer, Ralph Hasenhudel gets gets poached away from Southampton, either by a club in the UK or by a club abroad? Um, would Southampton be the sort of club who might look at Frank Lampard and think, yeah, we'll we'll take a chance? Um, 
that's what I'm really fascinated by is is the opportunity in the UK a Preston, as Dan sort of alluded to, or is it a Southampton or a West Ham type job? And uh, yeah, it's that's going to be fascinating to watch how his career develops. I don't expect him to take a job the rest of this season. I think he will probably sit the rest of this season out. But but as of the summer, I would think Frank will want to be back in work. Yeah, you, you would you would think so. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I, I, this is kind of like why I don't want Stephen Gerrard even linked with the Liverpool job, um, because I mean, Roman Abramovich is not someone who's shy of sacking a fan favourite, but he's just sacked one of Chelsea's greatest ever players, and that that can't be can't be easy to, an easy decision to make, and I I don't want certainly one of my favourite ever players to be in that position at Liverpool provide you know, if, if if it didn't work out and if he wasn't good enough to manage the club. So it's it's very much a case of be careful what you wish for when, when someone of that stature in your club moves into the managerial hot seat from the pitch. Yeah, I didn't want Thierry Henry or Patrick Vieira just because I thought they'd both be awful managers. <laughs> well, I think that's, <laughs> I, I think that's been... Uh, I think that's well, been, well, certainly Henry, I think that... I think Henri will be a Gary Neville. I think he had that one go. I think that'll be it. He will not go back in, in my opinion. Um, it, it's a bit different with Vieira because he had a couple of years at Nice where it, it was sort of okay, plodded along. Um, he might have another go somewhere, but I, I didn't want either of them at Arsenal on either occasion that our job was available because um, I just I just don't think they're the right personalities to be successful managers, unfortunately. Not in modern football. Patrick Vieira is a sort of manager who might have been successful in the 80s and the 90s. It's just, it's a much more cerebral game these days. You've, you, you know, you've got to have a thinker in the dugout by and large. Even, even the people like Klopp, who you see as kind of big animated personality types on the, on the touchline, he's got an incredible football brain. And I think that you win games in the brain as much now as you do with kind of fist pumping and, and um, tub thumping. It, it's just not the way football's played anymore. Yeah. Jürgen's tactics are normally spot on unless it's this insistence yeah. on starting Reese Williams, but that's a different um, topic for a different podcast, I suspect. Um, <laughs> we, we, have a, we have a busy agenda to work through, so we don't need me to uh, start cutting uh, 1980s wrestling promos. Um, one thing that I actually did that on last week was the um, Bernardo Silva goal um, at the Etihad um, when, yes, the rules state that he was onside the moment that Tyrone Mings kind of made a move towards the ball. Uh, I'm sorry, that was offside. There's not a, a, any kind of interpretation of that rule, in my opinion, were... Um, He's not gained an advantage by being off. It was Rodri who was off, off, offside, if I remember rightly. There's not a, a single iota of sense in that goal standing. Um, and at that point, Villa were in the game. I mean, we're not catching Manchester City, so it, it, that wasn't the point, because it's easy to say, bitter Liverpool fan, blah, blah, blah. As someone who's played enough football to be able to discuss that rule, as a centre-half, and, and Paul, I'm, I'm, me and you have had hour-long discussions in the past about how to head a football because an old conversation we had you know, trying to deal with Peter Crouch, you don't think you should go for the first ball, you should worry about the second. My opinion always was you try and win every header. But as a centre-half, if you're Tyrone Mings, the, 
you have got three options. Number one, you've got time because that person is offside and should not try and challenge you. Or if they do, you get a free kick. You try and bring the ball down, start an attack. Number two, you, you kind of like head the ball up away. Or number three, you lace that ball as hard as you can down the pitch to safety. You are not expected to have this fourth factor, this let the ball bounce through to this player who is offside so you get a free kick, which is seemingly what the referees and Peter Walton on BT Sport, who was determined to defend this decision until he was blue in the face. Um, I, I think that was a really insidious and poor decision. Yes, the rules state that as Tyrone Mings touches the ball, Rodri is onside. However, it's wrong. It's offside. It's as simple as that. That rule has been tightened up and clarified today. I just wanted to get both of your thoughts on that. Yeah, so so firstly, Dan, I uh, I actually do think Tyrone Ming should have stepped in and headed that. But I, I, I take the argument that, you know, in modern football that's so much about possession, why should he have to go and head it into a 50-50 area? Um when actually he's got time to bring it down because Rodri's offside and, and shouldn't be allowed to, to interfere with with him in that process. So um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that the referee got the decision right um, uh, by the by the rule. I mean, the rule is nonsense, and that's most maybe the most stark example of where the rule's nonsense. But there have been other goals in the last couple of years in the Premier League where not quite as clearly as that, the same nonsensical rule was applied, that once a defender touches it, all bets are off. Um, and, and that has been the rule for a number of years. And it's always been nonsensical to me because you, uh, the point that was made on, on BT Sport by the pundits was absolutely right. You are taught as a defender from your dot to go and deal with danger. What you're not taught is to let the ball bounce through and hope that it goes to your goalkeeper. You know, it's just you're asking players to unlearn everything they've ever learned. Mm -hmm. So um, the rule is nonsense uh, and they need to change the rule, which is not what they've done today. Only IFAB can change the laws of the game. IFAB need to change the laws of the game. That rules are nonsense. Um the the clarification on interpretation that the that the uh, professional match officials body I can't remember exactly what their full title is PMGOL uh, is it that that's it PMGOL professional something some I, I don't know by anyway, abbreviation then, so, won't make a non explicit podcast <laughs> yeah those people who run the the <laughs> rules for, for the Premier League and um and the football league in the UK. Uh, have issued a clarification that has very clearly said um, in those in those situations that will be considered offside. Uh, and I think that's the right thing to do as a short-term measure. But the only long-term solution to this is to get IFAB to change the rules so that it makes sense. Um, and we went through a period... The reason the rule exists, Dan, is because we went through a period when it the rule simply said, if you're gaining an advantage by being offside, it's offside. Now, the, the query was, well, what's gaining an advantage? So they tried to add all these additional kind of criteria to clarify what was considered an advantage and what wasn't. And what they've done, as always happens when you try and over-clarify these rules, is they've created a mess. <laughs> and the truth is, you know someone's gained an advantage when it's clear they've gained an advantage 
And Rodri very clearly gained an advantage by being offside and being able to sneak up on the blind side of Tyrone Mings. So, um, you know, the clarification is helpful. Hopefully we don't have another situation like that this season. I can understand why Dean Smith was absolutely furious. <laughs> and, and what did he ask the referee, Dan? The line, did did the you line get some juggling balls for Christmas? It was, it was Dan, that. <laughs> that is one of the best refereeing heckles I've ever heard, and it's the best um, red card I've, I've told... best red card I've heard. Yeah, I don't think I've told the story before, but I once went to a British ice hockey game when I was in Edinburgh just for the experience. I'm not a big ice hockey fan, and there's only about 300 people in this big echoey indoor arena watching Edinburgh versus um, Belfast and swearing is very much not the thing at ice hockey. You can get, you know, escorted out. Um, and there was an incident there where a, a referee had given a decision against Edinburgh that the fan, the home fans all sort of, you know, Fuck 180 or often didn't like. And this Scottish bloke in front of me stood up and he shouted to the referee, who I believe was named Mr. Hansen, Mr. Hansen, Mr. Hansen, you are very, very ugly. <laughs> and, and the Dean Smith heckle has gone up with with Mr. Hanson. You're very ugly as one of my favourite official uh, heckles of all time. Um, I can understand why he was furious. It was a ridiculous uh, situation. The refs were right by the letter of the law. They were, um, but that doesn't mean that the law's right. It clearly isn't. And uh, and hopefully the clarification is just one step towards trying to change that rule. Uh, and I think we should just go back to something that very basically says a player who seeks to gain an advantage from being in an offside position is considered to be interfering with play and therefore offside should be should be given. And I would just make it as simple and straightforward as that. Kind of first of all, well, the only thing I want to point out really is that that heckle was directed towards Mr. Coote, so it's a good deal less X-rated than what I would have come up with. I would have deserved my red card. I'm not so sure Dean Smith deserved a, a red card for asking or not whether or not he got something for Christmas, um, unless you're <laughs> inferring that there's an underlying meaning about it, because he is a clown, there's no doubt about that. Um, Carl, what do, what do you think of the offside rule? Um, I don't even know anymore, to be honest with you. Um, I'd like to have, yeah, I don't even know what offside is. I, I should just stop watching football, quite frankly. Um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll become an ice hockey fan. They sound like pleasant people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, NFL's no, where I, it's at, Cam. I'm not sure I'll be able to get up to Edinburgh at the moment, but there you go. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it, it, yeah, it just seems to be an ongoing saga, doesn't it? Really, I think sort of Paul's covered it quite well. I, I hadn't actually seen that 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 game or that incident. Um, to sound like Arsene Wenger, but um, <laughs> so I, I haven't followed. I saw the update earlier, but uh, I haven't. I actually haven't even seen the the replay or anything. Um, I obviously did hear about the amusing referee directed remarks, though. So uh, you know, it's not all it's not all bad. Um, but yeah, it does feel like they're just yeah needlessly sort of tinkering with it and just making things more and more confusing. And I see in every kind of football discussion I'm in people have completely opposite views on it because no one's really clear on what the rule actually is and people are sort of making assumptions on what the rule was. Oh, well, that was three rule changes ago. It's all different now and it just seems like impossible um, to get any sort of consistency and to the point where even I think even the players and the people involved in the game are a bit flummoxed by it, um, which is uh, obviously not helpful. So, yeah, something definitely needs to be done. Um, well, Tyrone, Tyrone Mings did tweet, didn't he, the next day to say, I didn't know that was the rule. Now, yes, well, I'm yeah, not sure... Yeah. I, 
I'm not sure if I was his agent, I'd be recommending that he tweets <laughs> that he doesn't know the rules of the game. He gets paid, you know, £60,000 a week to play. But um, <laughs> but I do have some sympathy with the fact that uh, that it's a bit confusing even for players to keep up with. I mean, they, they need to know the rules and that's on the jobs the, the job of the coaching staff at the various clubs to make sure they know the rules. But again, fundamentally, the answer to this question, Dan, is the rule is crap and needs replacing <laughs> But basically, that's it. It's offside. I'm sorry, it just is. I don't care what interpretation it is. If you've ever gone anywhere near a football in your life or tried to win a header or bring a ball down in your life, that is offside. End of story. Um, but before I get going again and start thinking of Dean Smith... <laughs> sorry, that was a, that was one of the best referee heckles I've uh, I've heard, Paul. Rather like um, like your dad in the, t- the tunnel, uh, I think it was at Leaksy SOB, when um, he when the, the referee abandoned the game. It was that, that, that story you told when the, uh, the, the linesman took his, his ball and went home because he was being abused by someone in the crowd. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. The referee said the game was suspended, wasn't it, and restarted. And then um, the, the referee said that the linesman and and myself don't feel like we're we're in a fit position to restart the game. And didn't your dad say something on the lines of you weren't in a fit position the, to start the game? To be honest, yeah. The, the referee said um, to my old man, who was the, one of the managers involved, had said to him. Uh, I don't think the linesman, who, who's the one who'd stormed off after being abused by a fan, I don't think he feels in a capable state to restart. <laughs> uh, and my old man's answer was, I question whether he was in a capable state to start in the first place, <laughs> um, which maybe wasn't the sympathy we was looking for at the time. <laughs> that, I'm, I'm sure your dad will take absolutely not, no pleasure in this whatsoever, but I, I've used that uh, insult myself quite a few times over the years. Um... <laughs> Speaking of an insult, um, looks like the Champions League is kind of they're trying to like push through a bit of a, a revamp of, of how it's going to work. Um, I know, Paul, you liked the kind of um, new approach to the Champions League, which was kind of through necessity um, post lockdown. Um, Can this is something that we've, dis- we've discussed? F- for me, it's. If you want to revamp the Champions League, for me, you have to go back to straight knockout. Um, I, I don't see how playing... Th- it's a complicated format. Do, 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 you want to, do you want to explain it to us? I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my best. I mean, what, what they're basically... A bit of context. This is all part of um, the ongoing discussion, which which is becoming more and more frequent now, of the big clubs in Europe talking to each other more often and more frequently about how they can make more money by playing each other more often. <laughs> Basically, that's essentially what it boils down to. And the, the power that those clubs now have through um, you know various TV rights and TV deals around the world, meaning that they have, uh, you know, they wield a certain amount of, of, of power and influence over the game and including over the, the governing bodies of the game. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about, I mean, we've been hearing about, you know, breakaway leagues and European super leagues or whatever for, for years and years and years now, but it, it, it's as those clubs have got more powerful, those, those conversations keep, keep happening and stories keep getting leaked and proposals keep getting on earth. There was something in the times, um, the other week about, you know, there's plans for a, for a breakaway league where, which would be funded by an investment bank, 
and it would be, you know, the usual suspects, right? All the big sort of dozen or so teams, we could all reel them off um, off the top of our heads, you know, playing each other in, in midweek with still playing their, their league commitments. Um, so FIFA are now obviously trying to scramble to, to block that um, by saying that anyone that joins it, you know, won't their players then won't be eligible for you know, the, the the World Cup and, you know, and the official FIFA tournaments and your your local um, confederation um, cup, you know, the the, the, the Euros and, and so on. Um, that's always their trump card to block anything like that. Um, and what they're also now trying to do to, to sort of help with this uh, or to sort of offer a, a sort of deal breaker or whatever is is basically this, this new Champions League format, which is apparently being discussed, uh, you know, ne- next month, I think. When, when it exactly it will come in from, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but the idea is that it will be, I think, extended by four, te- four clubs to, to 36 teams. Um, and then there'll be these sort of 10... 10 games, you know, essentially the group stage becomes 10 games, five home, five away. And then the 36 gets cut down to 16 into the knockout, which will presumably go through in the same format it does now after the Champions League group stage. Um, and is apparently modelled on on how they do chess tournaments. Um, I don't know much about chess tournaments beyond watching certain Netflix programmes over the last few months, which people might have watched. Um, that's about the extent of my knowledge. But uh, yeah, now, whether that's, you know how how far those talks have progressed, and, and I presume there's maybe more details to the proposals. I don't know, but um, first of all, yeah, be get get your thoughts on the formats. It's obviously immediately look. You know, it's 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 the classic FIFA evolution of tournaments, which is more more clubs and more games. Um, whether it will pacify the the very biggest clubs, um, I don't know. Um, and whether it will make these, you know, breakaway league things go away as well, it also will remain to be seen. But I think this is something that's going to keep coming back on the agenda more and more frequently, um, you know, as those those big clubs, you know, become run more and more like businesses, which a lot of the big ones are now. Um, they, they are focused on profits. Um, and like I say, playing each other is the best way for them to get those profits because that's what generates the, the worldwide TV interest and that's where the money is. So... This isn't going to go, and we've covered this, it feels like every three or four weeks we come on to some sort of story like this, right? It, it's it, it, um, Whether that's just because we're in lockdown and they've got nothing better to do than jump on a Zoom and figure out how to, <laughs> how to make some more money, I don't know. When life goes back to normal, maybe it'll, uh, maybe it'll go off the agenda again. We'll, we'll have to see. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, yeah, so it's, yeah we'll, we'll, maybe we'll have to come back to it if, you know, if this sort of new format gets agreed, then we'll pro- probably have more details on it and we'll probably we'll probably be discussing it again in a few weeks' time. But, uh, yeah, I think it's not a coincidence that we, we keep seeing these stories coming out and getting leaked because clearly, you know, the, 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 the big clubs are speaking to each other more and more frequently about this and realise that collectively they do have a lot of, a lot of muscle now in these, in these talks um, and I think, yeah, there's, there's, it sounds like, yeah, there's almost a starting to pitch a battle between, you know, the big influential clubs in Europe and the governing bodies of the game. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see who wins that because it will undoubtedly have, you know, not just impact for those direct teams directly involved, but for all the other clubs around as well in some form or another, depending on who wins those battles and what, what format tournament, well, what tournaments end up taking place and what format they're in, it will undoubtedly have, you know, a ripple effect through, uh, certainly through the European leagues. Well, um, the, 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 the big takeaway from the Khan, which I, I wasn't too sure about was, um, 
you you mentioned that they, you can block players playing in, in other tournaments. This is all getting a bit carry packer, isn't it, Paul? Yeah, yeah, I mean that's exactly what I was thinking, Dan. Uh, listening to um, what's David Coward doing? Can't describe it. Well, exactly. Where, where's Tony Gregg when you need him? <laughs> um, uh, and no one needs him. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> it, that 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 is what it reminds me of. It, it reminds me of World Series cricket and, and Kerry Packer, and uh, and in that scenario, the breakaway happened, and then they banned players from playing, you know, in Test match cricket. And the reason the breakaway happened there was because. The game, you know, the the uh, I, uh, you know, the international governing body for cricket, uh, wasn't in a financial position to compete with Kerry Packer, so Packer's money won out, and players went and played in it. And if you think about the the long term impact of of World Series cricket, I mean, I don't think we have the 2020 franchise. No, not at all. No, now. no, no. Without World Series yeah, cricket, yeah. and I know World Series cricket wasn't necessarily about you know twenty overs or anything like that. In fact, it was they played some test matches or sort of you know wannabe test matches. It's just about exposure, uh, exposure and money. But it, but it was about exposure. It was about money. It was about trying to bring a level of kind of razzmatazz and glamour to the game that hadn't existed beforehand. And I think the difference with football is there is a lot more power and money in the governing bodies that, that run football than there ever was in the in the cricket equivalent. Um, so that's why every time this comes on the agenda, every time one of these breakaways gets suggested, the response from FIFA and UEFA and the other governing bodies is to try and buy off that threat with an offer to the bigger clubs and the more powerful clubs. And and as Con um, described it, it sounds like what we've got here is another UEFA effort to try and buy off the threat of a breakaway. Um, and that is this, this chess tournament format, which I'll be honest, uh, I have even less knowledge about than Con. Um, you know, I I can just about remember what all the pieces are allowed to do in chess, and that's my, yeah, well, my, that's the limit of that. My knowledge, my, knowledge. Of ch- my knowledge of chess is is based around um, the culture episode of Bottom. Okay, right, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're not we're not starting from a high level of chess knowledge <laughs> on this podcast. No, I think no, it no. is safe to say. Um, but look, it, I am not generally in favour of adding more games to the Champions League group stage. Frankly, in whatever format they play it, uh, I've said that before. The group stages dull already because most of us can look at most of the groups at the start and work out who's going to go through and you'd probably get you know if there are eight groups i think each year and you get six of the eight groups spot on every year is is pretty much how it feels there's always a couple of teams that get through and you think oh that's a surprise they're, they're a new team to the party and and occasionally one of those teams gets through the last 16 as well and you think oh here we go this could be interesting and then invariably they get knocked out in the quarterfinals um and, and we have to sell all the, the players same. Yeah, exactly. Or, or even worse, even worse, you get you do what Monaco did, and you get to the semi-final, and then all your players just get ra- uh, raided the next summer, and and you end up going back to being rubbish. So, and it happened to Ajax as well, didn't it? And so, you know that. I think more games in the group stage is not a good idea. I don't really have a very strong view about the way they want to format the group stage. I'm not a huge fan of the group format so if they want to do something else and keep it at six games and have a slightly different configuration i could live with that 
but ultimately more games. Look at the football calendar. Look at what it looks like already. Look at what we're living with. And I know this is slightly COVID-affected, but there's football every 30 seconds as a game. Now, again, I've said this before, it feels a bit strange for a football podcast to be constantly complaining about there being too much football, (laughs) but there is too much football, and I don't think we need more midweeks being taken up by the Champions League. The reality is, if that happens, then my long-held belief that if you're in Europe in a particular season, you don't play in the League Cup, that has to come in for, for, for English football. Because there's just no way you'd fit the League Cup games in. You just wouldn't be able to. It'd become impossible. If you've got to give another four midweeks in the first half of the season over to a European football, then when on earth are those teams supposed to play in the League Cup? They'd either have to withdraw or they'd have to play under 23 teams in the League Cup. There's no other way around it. I'm I'm all in on anything that gets rid of the League Cup. <laughs> Would you like to get rid of it just for Liverpool, though, Dan, or are you are you for abolishing the whole concept? Um, I'm I'm a you mate. If you're in Europe, you don't need to be in the League Cup. You've got other things to worry about. Yeah, and I, and I look at. I think is there an argument to say there's more money in watching Arsenal play Bayern Munich uh, in a world where Arsenal ever get in the Champions League again? <laughs> Arsenal play Bayern Munich than there is in, in watching you know Arsenal's reserves play Lincoln in the League Cup. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's much more money in the former rather than the latter. Um, but you know, I, I just think conceptually. The Champions League is bloated enough as it is in the first half of the season. We already have a load of games that are dead rubbers at the end of it. Let's not have more of that, please. Yeah, and do you remember back in uh, around the, the turn of the millennium when um, there was two group stages in the Champions League? I remember that very well. So that was all the kill. Arsenal failed to get out of two groups. Yeah, it was... Um, that was overkill. Again, it was a strange setup where you played, you know, and I think everybody agreed that that didn't work. Everyone agreed that that was too much. And that's why we went to, they got rid of the second group stage and they introduced the last 16, which hadn't existed before. If you remember, the knockouts used to start at the quarterfinal. And I think that was a pretty nice balance. And I think that the Champions League we have now sort of works. Um, in terms of size, I, I still don't love the group stages, but it sort of works. Um, I don't think we need more group games. No, or, I, I, you know, mini league games or whatever, whatever the format is. Completely agree. Yeah, um, I, this is the thing. What I think football misses, it needs someone to say publicly. Sometimes less is more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would rather watch two great games of football over the course of a week than watch 10 bang average or garbage games of football. Yeah. You know, it's like, and, and and this is someone who is kind of thriving off all of the football all the time, apart from Liverpool games. And I know, I know it's hard to predict. You can say, well, you know, how would you know that Olympiacos versus PSV won't be a great game of football? And of course you don't. It's, you know, but, but it, it's probably just not a... going to be. <laughs> <laughs> It's just in principle, I just think we need to have a view on how much we play. And it, it brings up all the issues, again, we've talked about many times on the podcast about 
players and about you know the number of games you're asking players to play. The flip side, if you add another four games where they can't rotate the first team like they do in the League Cup, you take Liverpool and say you've got four more Champions League group games of some description to play in the first half of the season. Well, that means Liverpool need another four or five players for their squad. And they are four or five players that that means they're not playing for Burnley or they're not playing for... West Brom. Instead, they're sitting on the bench at Liverpool. Like, like, let's think about what's really better for the long-term health of the game of football, and not just what's better for lining in somebody's pocket next week. I know it probably won't happen, but that's what we need to do. We need to think about the knock-on impact of creating these additional Champions League games and what it means for the game as a whole. Yeah, I think that's pretty well covered. Um, I mean, I agree with what Paul's saying. I'm, I'm extremely dubious and sceptical, unfortunately, because um, it's literally everything you read, is it's going in the opposite direction to all the common sense that you've both said, which is, uh, yeah, a bit a bit depressing in a way. Um, but yeah, it certainly feels like it's going to be an interesting sort of couple of years in terms of, um, you know, what sort of gets agreed and, and what, what, you know, what gets kind of pushed for behind the scenes and whether some of these you know, ideas that have been banded around for a long time actually do materialise or not. But it, it does just feel like it's going in that direction of, you know, that saturation point that, you know, that sort of Paul's, you know, raised there as well, um, which, yeah, I'm completely behind the less is more um, approach. But uh, unfortunately, I don't think uh, the organisations are. <laughs> well, we'll have to get ourselves. We need to get ourselves on the FIFA board. We need to be the FIFA safe. <laughs> we, we need to figure out how we do that. Well, you were for definitely out on the less is more trend. Um, so certainly, if you look at the size of the Euros. Mm. No, well, in, indeed, yeah, this is it. You know, they they increased the World Cup. They're increasing the Euros now. They're increasing the Champions League, um, and and they're increasing the the Europa as well, aren't they? Or whatever, whatever, whatever it's now called. And that's um, going to be difficult to do because that's already gigantic. Well, this is it, yeah. So um, It starts yeah. three days after the previous final, doesn't it? I mean, it's ludicrous. <laughs> well, I know Celtic were also the Champions League like f- within a week of the final over, over summer. <laughs> well, I mean, in fairness, that probably just saved them from embarrassment later well, on. That's just indicative of, 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 uh, of Celtic's season, to be perfectly honest. They've not, not had um, the, the best one. Um you could maybe say about this podcast that we, we focus too much on the serious side of football and you know what, I, I make no apologies for that. I think it's um, important to talk about the issues like TV deals and um, Champions League revamps. But um, one thing I did enjoy talking about a few weeks ago, which I kind of want to expand on now, was the um, our childhood watching Gazetta Football Italia. I know certainly um, that I was, I mean, because of Gazetta, you know, I, I always watch out for Sampdoria's results because they, they were always my Italian team at that time, um, and I used to, I, I still do in in some ways keep an eye out for Inter Milan's results as well, just because they got their hands on um, real Ronaldo. Um, <laughs> but, but but what what are your 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 memories and inclinations because of um, of football Italia? So so mine Dan and it, it you know. It genuinely wasn't an attempt at glory hunting, but I loved Juventus's kit 
from from like the first time I watched Football Italia and and Gazzetta Football Italia, I just loved Juventus's kit. And this was the early years of of um, Italian football being broadcast in the UK, when actually Juventus weren't a dominant team because Milan were winning everything. Milan were completely a- dominant, weren't they? AC Milan were completely dominant. They were the you know I think they won the league four or five years in a row. I think they did an un- unbeaten season, didn't they, in that period? I think sure. I'm right in saying Milan had an invincible year in that period or if they didn't they had a sort of long run over the course of two seasons that was that was uh pretty pretty impressive um and you know you can still name the the great milan side of costa curta and maldini and tosotti and albertini and you know all those great players rykard and hullet and van basten um they are they're kind of almost etched on my memory but it, but it was juventus that i really latched onto it because of the kit and i think i think roberto baggio was there as well and obviously a phenomenally talented um football player and and juventus very soon got back to kind of being the dominant force they'd always been in Italian football. But I had no concept of that. I just was watching Italian football and thinking, wow, that that black and white kit's really smart. Um, but I think the the fact that it was, it was like a League of Nations, the Serie A at the time, so many of the best players in world football played there. Uh, and and it, it didn't matter who you watched, which team you watched, there was a superstar on the pitch and, and you knew who those players were. The, obviously, at, at Milan, you had the three Dutch guys, Hullet and Van Basten and Rijkaard. I think, you know, at Lazio, there was Gascoigne. I think I think Karl-Heinz Riedler was there, wasn't he, for a spell up front. And um, you mentioned Sampdoria, that great Sampdoria side had Lombardi and Mancini in it. it. There were some really, really good sides to watch, some interesting games, some very, very talented football players. And Channel 4 just covered it a bit different. Like, the whole concept of Gazetta Football Italia, which was a football magazine show, just was less of a thing then. You know, we had highlight shows, of course we did, and we had kind of chatty sort of fan shows, but but that sort of magazine style uh, that Gazetta Football Italia took to its Saturday morning show with, with James Richardson sitting outside a cafe with a sort of, you know, a little, uh, a little espresso and, and the, all the, all the papers strewn across the table and he'd have a guest on and you'd show a few highlights and then you get James and his guest reading. And he always had his impeccable Italian accent, which seemed amazing to me at the time, reading out the headlines off, you know, uh, the, the Italian newspaper, and sipping on his coffee and I thought <laughs> that's got to be better than sitting in rainy Stoke-on-Trent on a Saturday morning <laughs> so yeah I, it, the Saturday morning show actually to me more than the Sunday live games yep it's I the think. thing that I remember as just being fantastic and, and it was in the days when you didn't have soccer AM wasn't a thing so you didn't have that alternative Saturday morning football show you know, everyone watched Gazetta Football Italia and they talked about it at school on, um, on you know, the Monday morning. Wow, did you see that game from the, like, a week out of date, that game that Sampdoria played or, or Lazio played or Roma played. It was, yeah, it was really a, a unique football show of its time and prompted by the fact that we had Gascoigne go out there and I think Des Walker had gone, hadn't he, as David well? Platt. David Platt was out there. So there were a number of people who were stalwarts of the England team playing out in Italy. Uh, and it, it just made for really, really good football television. Yeah, it did. And you know, like the credit, the opening credits were like vivid and bombastic and, you know, like 
someone shouting and things in Italian, which made no sense to you at the time. But you you remember it and you remember the music. It was very kind of visceral and memorable. It, it, I, I think as highly of that music as I do Match of the Day. Because it was just yeah. Saturday morning childhood, watching uh, Barry against Piacenza highlights from from the week previous and all these magnificent kits and as you said of the foreign legion some of the the best players in in the world at the time uh, calm did, did you used to partake yeah yeah i will i will have been one of the people talking to to paul about it at school but uh, <laughs> yeah so i used to watch it um and i think uh, it was yeah there was definitely that sort of social element afterwards obviously there was no social media then but there was there was you know actual talking to people like we used to have to do um so there was definitely that sort of you know monday morning on the playground or at break you know because talking about it from the day before um but no what i was going to say is one of the reasons i liked it so much is that we we didn't have sky so there wasn't many ways of actually watching any whether it was live or even just highlights or whatever it was just a way of being able to watch some football and the fact that at the time syria was was the place to be. It, it wasn't just sub football. It was actually really good football and really big name players that you know, as Paul has listed, you know, players you've actually heard of. Whether it's because they're English players overseas or just the best Brazilians and Argentinians and Italians and so on, uh, you know, and players from around Europe. So it was a great way as a kid to just watch some, you know, really good sort of top class football. Um, and I think actually at the time, I think Channel Four had a bit of a very kind of sports orientated sort of weekend morning schedule because they had the NBA as well. And when, you know, when the Chicago Bulls were in sort of winning everything and, you know, had all these huge superstars, you know, Michael Jordan and so on. So there was, I'm sure there was like, whether it was like one was Saturday and one was Sunday or whether they were both back to back, I'll be honest, I can't remember. But I just remember it was sort of Channel 4 weekend mornings became a real, a real yeah. fixture because they just had these like run. I think they covered something else as well. I can't remember what it was. Well, now, I, but... I think Trans World Sport was on Channel Channel four at the time. I know that I know that's since been on satellite channels on Eurosport and whatever, but I think at the time Channel Four had yeah. Transworld Sport as well. So it, it really was a kind of, you know, your fix of sort of what seemed really kind of exciting, mysterious foreign sports, whether it was Italian football, which obviously football's the same game, but but all these kind of mystical foreign players playing in Italy or whether it was seeing these strange sports that we just don't have in the UK being played on Transworld Sport and, and, you know, the NBA coverage, as you say, Con, it was a, it just felt quite exciting compared to what a lot of the other channels were doing in terms of their sports coverage at the time. I've been on Transworld mm. Sport. You've been on it? I have, yes. Um, they, they were covered um, across the court challenge between um, Saints uh, and Sail Sharks, you know, like Rugby League versus Rugby Union, which games it's always descending to farce because <laughs> Rugby League players can do Rugby League things and Rugby Union players can do Rugby Union things. And I was stopped in the club shop and so would, would I speak to Transworld Sports? So of course I will. And they said, you know, like, what do you think of the match and how do you think you'll go on? And I, I said something along the lines of we should be playing Leicester Tigers who were the champions at the time. We were the champions at the time, so we should be playing it the champions. I'm not a big fan of the idea of the games because we'll win. You know, we'll easily win the rugby league half, and Sale will win the rugby union half easily. And they cut it to say we'll win easily, and that was it. <laughs> and we lost the game by two points. 
So I look like what you're a, saying is Dan, you were misquoted by Transworld Sport. Well, yes, it was. Yeah, I look, yeah. Like a, I look like a prize prat because I've said we'll win easily and we lost by two points. And it's not what we said. You know, like, I, I would have expected a close game because it's it just who who beats each other more at the time. But I I, I, dig, I digress. I've, as you can tell, I'm over that honestly. <laughs> um, the cruel of the world of media there, Dan. <laughs> Just before we finish on on Gazetta Italia, the other thing that I loved about it was Peter Brackley was the commentator. Absolutely, yeah. And Peter Brackley is one of the most underrated sports commentators of all time. He has an amazing voice. Yes, for for indeed. for sports commentary, and, and he was uh, he was outstanding. I mean, we need to get Tom back on so we can talk about commentators because I I would argue that Barry Davis is underrated, even though everyone knows who Barry Davis is. He was that good. He was still underrated, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I heard you and Tom having a, a Barry Davis loving when Tom was on the show, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so many great commentators of that era. But Peter Brackley was was synonymous with with that that program, and yep. uh, has a fantastic voice. And um, yeah, he he was another part of what made it feel kind of different. Was that you heard Motti and you heard Barry Davies and you heard Brian Moore because they were on the tally all the time. Clive. Um, you know, Clive. Yeah, Clive probably to a I think Clive was still doing the sort of third game on match of the day at the time. Yeah. He, he was very much the sort of third wheel to Motti and Barry Davies. Um, obviously went across to replace uh, Brian, Brian Moore when he retired on, on ITV. Be, but they were the guys you heard a lot of, and um, and then Peter Brackley just had this such rich, brilliant commentating voice that it, yeah, it was everything about that program. I just loved it. Yeah, it was definitely a sort of right place, right time. Yeah, they just yeah, um, and and you know, and most importantly, we would never have had on the ball without it um, on ITV. You know, where <laughs> with, uh, with with Barry and you know that magazine that magazine format was uh, you know. <laughs> Seamlessly transitioned over onto uh, onto ITV well, under the capable would, hands of uh, Gabby Logan would, and, and Barry. Would Dennis. we have had the Would we have had the Friday night joy of the John Barnes football show on Channel Five? <laughs> Thank, thankfully, Khan, me, me and Paul and, and many of our listeners will know that you were referring to on the ball the TV show, not the song by Anton Deck. Oh, yeah, no, that was, that's a different. That's one for another podcast to dissect that particular atrocity. Yeah, you always know. England football songs or any football songs actually are doomed when they just start listing the players in the team. That's in that that that's what happens when on the ball, isn't it? It's a sort of Beckham to win. Uh, it's all that nonsense. And once you once you get to that point where they've given up on lyrics and just started writing players' names down, then you know you're in trouble. Put it this or way: alternatively, just having Anton Deck involved. <laughs> I, I don't think Ian Brody and the Lightning Seeds have got much to worry about in terms of culture when it comes to uh, being matched for England songs. Or, or um, I do love a bit of um, uh, love in motion. Sorry, world in motion. Um, yeah. I, I, I do. I do love that. But yeah, one one of the things that always stands out to me to to Gazetta Football Italia as well was I, I loved Roma's old badge. You know, the the wolf. Um, which I believe they've now got on the away kit or one of the third kits, if I remember rightly. But um, yeah, I, I love that badge. Uh, it's very, again, it just seems to be bright colours and vivid and appealing and didn't have Tim Lovejoy on it and things like that. I know it was before Tim Lovejoy's time, but you get my point. There was definitely something about the kits that 
they definitely had Italian football in that time. But there was something about the kits that just didn't seem to exist in English football. Um, you know, the I think it was the boldness of the the, the red and black, uh, the red and black of Milan, the blue and black of Inter, the the black and white of Juventus. Now I know we have teams who wear black and white in in England, but it it just they, they had the thick black and white stripes. You know what I mean? It was the boldness. Then Lazio's is a classic kit. I think Roma's is a classic kit. The Fiorentina kit was a classic. Sampdoria. There was just. Yeah, there was just yeah the Sampdoria with the the sort Kappa. of bands in the middle was just there was just something sort of yeah really really fantastic about it, um, and and Italian football at the time was the place to be. It was, you know, this yeah. was before Spain and and the Premier League had kind of taken over, uh, and Italian football because they were the first one to get a super big um, satellite broadcast deal and on the back of the the success of Italian 90 Italian football was, was where everyone wanted to go. I mean, you were considered, you not tested yourself until you, uh, until you went and did it in Italy. That was the, the, the feeling at the time. And, um, and obviously, and now it's a rainy night in Stoke. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How times exactly. have changed. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you, you said that you like Juventus's kit, Paul, because I felt a bit, nebulous for, for me saying that the reason I picked Sampdoria as my Italian team was their kit but you went and said it for me so I feel okay to say it now yeah yeah I, I it's definitely the kit about Juventus I mean I I, I sort of don't it, it almost doesn't excite me as much now watching Juventus play but then because I sort of latched onto them through Gazette Italia when an English team played Juventus in the Champions League uh, and that was live on ITV. That was like, wow, Juventus are on the tally. Now, you can click a few buttons and watch Juventus whenever you want. It just doesn't have that same... It's the point we've made before about World Cups, I think, that y- you only got to see them players in a World once Cup. every four yeah. years in a World Cup. And now you can pretty much press two buttons on your laptop and be watching any game from anywhere in the world. And, yeah, it's... Uh, it's almost made shows like Gazetta kind of completely redundant, but of its time, it, it was one of the great football shows. Yeah, and of course, you, without wanting to turn this into a bumper edition, if, if we've got anything else we want to talk about, we've, we've um, re- I really enjoyed that. Love, love talking about football, Italia. Um, have we got anything else we want to, to mention? Anything that's caught your eye this weekend? I think you had one, didn't you, Con? Um, uh, there was there was nothing really from me other than to say that I think. What was interesting about the FA Cup games at the weekend was how freer teams seemed to play. Um, and there was a bit more entertaining football than in the last few rounds of the Premier League. And I do wonder a little bit if that's the top teams just feeling they can play with a bit more freedom. Well, Liverpool played with freedom. We actually scored a couple. Um, I think we're very unlucky to lose that game, to be honest. But um, yeah, I, I would say that the pressure seems to be off on the FA Cup, which... As a bit of an indictment of how the FA Cup has kind of shuffled down the pecking order a little bit, but uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, fa- a fair point. I think yeah, you only have to look at the contrast between you know the two the two Man United Liverpool games, how how the first one played out that was tense and nervous, and both teams desperate not to concede or and lose versus you know what it, it looks like. Um, you know, at the weekend, it was sort of okay. Go, go and have a game of football now. You know, you spent last weekend sizing each other up, um, and it was, but it was all, all the better for it. 
um as a you know and not just because of the result just as an enjoyable game to watch um but uh yeah the only the only other one one from me really and this, this perhaps won't necessarily um be significant to, to, to many people but i have quite a few friends from the, the sort of stockport region and um they parted company um with someone who's a sort of club legend there really in, in jim gannon who's been there for about five years now and his third spell as manager at the club i think and They've had some new owners, you know, t- take over recently. Um, you know, usual story of prom- promising the earth and modernising things and investment and all that. Um, but just very suddenly, out of nowhere, I think it was on Friday, they announced that, uh, you know, he'd, he'd left the club, you know, very abruptly with some, you know, vague wording around culture in the in the reasons for, for why. Um, so whether that just means that he's had an argument with the owners uh, or a fallout with the players, we don't know. But um, you only have to look very quickly on social media um, to search for either his name or Stockport County. The, the fans there are extremely upset. Um, the fact that he's gone, um, you know, he'd got them promoted last season. They were in, they're in a good position in the league. Um, everything on the pitch was going really well. Um, so it's, yeah, a bit of a, a bit of a shame for them. And it, it, it's one of those, it sort of feels a bit of an all too familiar story of, you know, new owners coming in and maybe thinking they know best. Um, and unfortunately, you know, sort of the people that have actually got the club to a point where it was attractive to buy are the ones that have to make way. Um, and it's not the first time we've seen that. I'm sure it won't be the last either. Um, but uh, yeah, just wanted to, to give that a uh, bit of a mention uh, on the show. Yeah, it was a surprise because I think it's fourth or fifth. They're right up there, aren't they, in the table? They are, yeah. I think the fourth, yeah. And they were great against West Ham, which is what I was just about to say. Um, they played really well against West Ham, lost to a late goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They gave it a real good go. Yeah, exactly. You know, they've just just very recently been, you know, had a bit of a media spotlight on them. You know, in in the cup as well, um, acquitted themselves really well. You know, and were were unlucky in the end. Um, but uh, yeah, so what? And I think that the other element actually, which I've got to mention, is they've hired the I can't remember his name, the Brighton under twenty three manager, because apparently that's what you do. Um, who's been there, you know, so I'm, I think, again, there's a bit of scepticism of, you know, is he really coming into the right level of football to understand, you know, working instead of working with, you know, sort of uh, youth players at a Premier League club to working with, you know, sort of, you know, part-timers and whatever um, at Stockport's level is quite different. So I'm not quite sure what the logic is there, whether he's got connections to the owners or whatever. I don't, I don't know. I'm not that close to it. But, yeah, it just all seems a very sort of bizarre um, turn of events over the last few days there, which is yeah definitely a shame for for the fans of the club. Yeah, but very much so. It's always um, the, the speculation always runs right right when when the takeover completed. It's um, it always seems to be the case. Um, I even remember back at um, when Abramovich took over Chelsea, the, the speculation started straight away. Was it um, Claudio Ranieri who was manager at the time? It yeah, was, yeah, 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 and uh, he he managed to, to to get around for a, a little bit longer, but he he always felt under threat after that takeover was completed. But um, uh, I digress there. I think we've covered the world of football pretty extensively um, tonight, gents. I think um, certainly I enjoy talking about um, football Italia. It's been a long time since uh, I remember those newspapers being scattered over the table. Um, if you've got anything you want to. To, to, to let us know about you can catch us now on Twitter on uh, at Big Football Pod and we're also uh, we've got a, a page on Facebook as well so if you want to to follow us on uh, the socials as I believe the kids say um, 
please please do um get in touch and if you want to to, to get in touch with me directly you can always catch me at at tlw one dan and i think we'll leave it there gents i think we've we've uh, had a, a good night's work there so thank you all for listening and we'll catch you again after a while <laughs>